Thank you, Tim. I promise no more dance moves. Uh, I got emails about that directly. We've been working our way through what we've titled the greatest sermon ever. Uh, certainly not mine, but a reference to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You could think of it maybe this way. At the beginning of every new administration, the prime minister gives a speech from the throne, or in the U.S., it's called the State of the Union. The Sermon on the Mount is what might be thought of as Jesus' State of the World address. And if you've tuned into any of these messages before, you know that the sermon addresses a number of key questions. It asks the question, what is real? It asks, what is the good life? It asks, who is a good person? And importantly, it addresses the question of how you become a good person. Everybody answers those questions. They do it whether they want to or not. We just, we do it by the way that we live. In the sense, the questions themselves are inescapable. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives his answers to those four great questions. What is it that's most real? What can you count on? Jesus' definitive answer, and it comes right at the very beginning of the gospel, is the kingdom of God, his reign, his will. Jesus says that's the foundation of existence. It's not a random universe. It's, it's not just one giant, meaningless machine. It's a person. It's a personal God, a God of immense power and wisdom and love. And his desire for the world is that we live under the authority and the will and the reign of God, the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says, whatever it is you're looking for, put it all aside and seek first the kingdom of God, because that's real. What's the good life? We all want to know. Jesus answers that in the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, in the, in the Beatitudes. The good life, he says, contrary to contemporary wisdom, is not based on wealth or IQ or attractiveness or thicker hair or, or whiter teeth. The good life is available right now to anyone who lives in partnership with God in his kingdom. That means right here in the middle of everyday circumstances, quarantined, isolated in our own homes, we can be blessed, still living the good life. Third question, who's a good person? Folks are really fuzzy on that in our day, aren't they? Jesus says a good person is someone who is pervaded by God's love and who routinely, routinely wills good things for other people. Often in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting rule breakers and rule followers. It's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says things like, you have heard it said. And he talks about behavioral compliance, obeying all the rules, but how that doesn't really get it done. But I say to you, and he goes on to speak about inner transformation. It's not just about following rules, but it's certainly not about breaking rules either. How is it that you become a good person? Well, the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount seems to be this that you put your full confidence in him, in Jesus, that you become his follower, his apprentice or student. And then you seek with the most sincere resolve, the great intent of your life. You try with the help of God to be creatively and consistently following him in all things. And there's a reason there's the reason the Sermon on the Mount is the most influential sermon, the most influential and inspiring talk of all, all human history. And, and it's not just that Jesus got lucky. 
It's not random. It's simply that no one else is able to address the great questions of life in a way that brings anywhere near the guidance or purpose or wisdom that Jesus' answers have now for over 2,000 years. And then he backed up his teaching with his own life, and his life manifested that wisdom in a way that still inspires people 2,000 years later. So let me say to all of you, you picked a great weekend to join us as we resume our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we're going to look at just one verse. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me in Matthew in chapter 6, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look just at verse 1. Jesus is warning here about a common mistake that people make when they pursue the good life. There's going to be a bunch of stuff that follows after this in the weeks ahead, but it starts here with a warning. Here's what Jesus says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others just to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The condition Jesus addresses here is what we might in our day call approval addiction. And if you have notes, we send out notes to those of you who are on our mailing list on Friday. You might want to follow along from this point in the message. Approval addiction means living in bondage to what it is that other people think of me. In a sense, my life becomes a performance to be seen by other people. Somebody once called it the disease to please. And Jesus goes on in Matthew 6 to talk about how people would do this by showing off how much it is they're giving, how much they're praying, how much they're fasting. In his day, in a sense, you pursued status by flaunting what a devout person you were. Now, in our day, we live in a much much less religious culture, so, so we probably tend to do it in other ways. But the underlying temptation is still there. And that's the temptation to live for other people's opinions of me rather than who I actually am before God. We can take something good, giving, fasting, praying. It could be my grades. It could be my body. And then we use it. We twist it, in a sense, in order to win other people's approval and feed our own ego. In Matthew chapter 6, people are giving and praying and fasting. Why? Because they want to impress other people. They want to be seen. And they want to pretend like they're doing it just because they love God. Jesus calls it hypocrisy. And it gets into all of us. It gets into churches. It gets into everybody. We all do this. We deceive ourselves. So in our message today, I want to talk a little bit about approval addiction. I want to look at, at the consequences of living that way. If you live as an approval addict, what can you expect? I want to talk with you about what the alternative is. And then we're going to listen to Jesus as he talks about the two great antidotes, if you want to pursue life in another direction. But first, let's talk a little bit more about what it means to be an approval addict. There was an author, a man named Mitch Prinstein, who wrote a fascinating book years ago called Popular. He says that around the time you entered high school, there were a series of chemical changes going on in your brain. Those changes made you more socially conscious than you ever were before. Turns out, that hormones weren't the only thing going on in our teenage brains. Popularity, chemically, not just socially, becomes an urgent priority. But the trouble is, for many people, those changes stuck with them ever since high school, and it's too bad because it turns out that some of the most popular people in the world are also the most miserable. 
Princeton describes a typical high school student as he tries to contrast two different kinds of popularity. In the first kind of popularity, he says there's there's what he called status. Status is how you impress other people. You're rich, you're beautiful, you're powerful, you're famous, and so on. So he describes a high school student, Alexandra Court. She's tall, she's attractive, she's impeccably dressed, she's sure of herself. She's the queen of the inner circle at her school. And every student surveyed lists Alexandra as the most popular girl in school. But do you want to guess who the most disliked girl in school is? Ironically, it was also Alexandra Court. She's gossipy, she's mean, she's selfish, she's exclusive. So contrasting status-oriented popularity, Princeton uses another word. He uses the word likability. And he defines it as being other-centered. Status seekers focus on themselves. Likeable people, the way Princeton uses the word, are focused on you. Status people talk about themselves, about what they're doing, about their lives. But likable people, they listen a lot. They're genuinely interested in you and in your life. When you're with a status seeker, you kind of feel less than. You're not really that important. But when you're with a likable person, you feel your best self. You you feel like you matter. And it struck me as I was reading through the material by Princeton that that what he calls likable people, trustworthy, genuinely caring for other people, willing their good, that what he's describing involves many of the same qualities that Jesus describes with the word that sounds kind of churchy to us, but gets at a really deep truth. The word is righteous. To understand Jesus, we might actually translate some of the verses in the Sermon on the Mount with that word, likable. Let me give you an example. Matthew 5.20, if you want to flip back a little bit in your Bibles. Matthew 5.20, a really core statement in the Sermon on the Mount. You could translate it this way. Unless your likability surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We think of righteousness as a kind of cliche, a, a pious thing. But really, it's a lot like what Princeton talks about, being a likable, caring person. The problem for people who suffer from approval addiction is not that that approval itself is wrong. It's that it's insatiable. They can never get enough. Approval addicts need constant, excessive reassurance. What do you think about this? How do I look? How did I do? That's why for young people... Social media can be so devastatingly addictive because at the same time when our brain chemistry starts changing and makes us crave the dopamine rush that comes through popularity, social media comes into our house like a giant candy dispenser. And look what you get to do. You can keep track of how many likes you have, how many followers you get. You get a little surge of dopamine every time. Did you know, I found this out this week, YouTube currently has over 13,000 tutorials on how to take the perfect selfie. 13,000 tutorials about how to take a better picture of me. How many tutorials do you think there are on YouTube about how to die to your imperfect little self? That would be zero. 
The alternative to approval addiction is simply this, to live before an audience of one. Soren Kierkegaard, great Danish thinker, he's the one who talked first about this idea of living as though I have an audience of one. What he recognized is that we're made to seek approval. We can't help ourselves. You look at a baby, when they're noticed, when somebody delights in them, they just beam, they, they radiate joy, and, and we know that's good. When my dog realizes I'm looking at him, he rolls over onto his back, he leaves his stomach exposed, so I'll rub his belly. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but it certainly is entertaining. The question isn't, will I seek approval? The question is, where will I seek it? And if I have an infinite need for approval, if that's part of what it means to be human, God has an infinite supply. If I find my security in God's approval, if I find my identity in the image of God, if I find my hope in the strength and the power of God, if I live for God's approval, not human affirmation, then I don't have to run around aimlessly seeking it everywhere else. In fact, it turns out you can't actually live for both human approval and divine approval. You have to choose which road. This is the great insight that the Apostle Paul have. If you turn in your Bibles to Galatians in chapter 1, in verse 10, listen to what he says there. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'd just be pretending, performing, compromising, calculating. The Gospel of John describes a group of religious leaders, and it says of them simply this, that they love the approval of men and women rather than the approval of God. So here's a little phrase. I'm going to try this on. And you can take it into this week if you feel like you need to work on approval addiction. If you have somebody sitting next to you, get ready. You're going to try it out on them. You're going to say these words out loud. I don't care. You say that. I don't care. It's it's tremendously liberating, isn't it? This week, when some fashion critic doesn't approve of your clothes, you say, I don't care. When somebody with a knack for interior design doesn't approve of your decor, I don't care. When the cool kids don't approve of your taste in music, I don't care. A coworker doesn't necessarily like your idea, I don't care. A law enforcement officer doesn't like how fast you're driving, I don't, well, actually, you might want to care a little bit about that one. But when you take that phrase, I don't care, into the week, it doesn't mean I don't care about you. It means... In the end, I live for an audience of one, and you're not that one. God isn't calling us to win universal approval. Not everyone is going to like you, so you may as well stop trying. You never get to scratch that itch completely. But here's the amazing thing. This is life in the kingdom of God. Jesus likes me. I mean, go figure. It turns out the most important theological truth that I ever learned I learned when I was three years old, and many of you learned the same one. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so.
It means I live now in the reality of the kingdom, and I live for an audience of one. Jesus goes on to talk a little bit about the consequences of living the other way, of performing and impressing other people, of doing things just to be seen. Again, in that day, it was often religious activity. But in our day, it could be career advancement or athletics or all kinds of things that we do to be seen by other people. Jesus says, and this is profound, if you do, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Over the next couple of weeks, Jesus is going to talk a lot about rewards in Matthew 6, and this is confusing for people. Jesus will say, if you do things to be seen, you get a certain reward, but, but you won't get one from God. And if you do stuff in secret, then God will reward you. The Bible talks a lot about rewards, but thoughtful people, we're often confused about this. We wonder, is Christianity kind of a, a mercenary religion? Does it bribe people? I mean, isn't that immature? C.S. Lewis writes about it. He does so in a way that I find very helpful. He says there's two kinds or two categories of rewards. They're very different from each other. There's extrinsic rewards for something that you do, and then there's intrinsic rewards that are directly connected to the thing that you're doing. An extrinsic reward has no natural connection to the activity, no relationship to it. It's just kind of an add-on. It gets tacked on afterwards. It's a prize or a bribe. But an intrinsic reward is one that flows naturally, naturally connected to what I'm doing. Extrinsic versus intrinsic. And just to make sure the difference is clear, if you marry somebody because they're rich, because they've got lots of money, would that be an intrinsic reward or an extrinsic reward? (laughs) Well, that's extrinsic, isn't it? You shouldn't do that. But if you marry somebody for love, because you experience love and you give and you receive it, that's an intrinsic award. That's good. You should do that. If you study for grades in order to get a high GPA so other people will be impressed, is that extrinsic? Is it intrinsic? Well, that's, that's extrinsic, isn't it? But if you study for the joy of learning, for the wonder of being able to know and discover and the the intellectual enrichment of it all, that's intrinsic. You ought to do that. If you buy a Tesla because it's got status and prestige and it's going to impress other people, that's extrinsic. That's bad. But if you buy it because it's got speed and beauty and power and you're going to give it to your pastor as an expression of love and appreciation, that's good. You ought to do that. (laughs) Don't you dare. Don't you dare. But the Bible has lots to say about rewards. They're important. We shouldn't ignore them. We shouldn't be embarrassed by them. But when the Bible talks about rewards... It's talking about rewards that are intrinsically connected to loving God and living in his kingdom. And most of the time, the the rewards the Bible talks about are about the person you will become. Sometimes the Bible uses physical images to describe the rewards. Why? Because we need metaphors, we need images in order to convey spiritual truths that are beyond words. But when the Bible talks about rewards, we need to think about them like grown-ups. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus isn't saying if you do good deeds and somebody else sees them, God's going to respond, well, you know what? I was going to give you extra jewels in your crown and a bigger mansion, but now that people have seen what you did, I'm going to take all those rewards back. No. The reward Jesus is talking about here is primarily the person you become. If you do these good things in secret, what happens is increasingly you are freed from the tyranny of approval addiction. You begin to have a peace that comes from knowing that you are loved by God and that's enough. You have the security of not needing the approval of other people all the time. You have the joy of being free to help and do it gladly, to help another human being without constantly needing to have them stroke your own ego in order to do it. And you can even be happy when somebody raises their eyebrows or even when somebody honks their horn unfairly at you. But if you keep performing just to impress other people, doing your so-called righteous acts so that you can be seen, well, then your reward will be that, that they'll be impressed by you, maybe. God will allow you to have that. But what you miss is the transformation that goes on inside as you become a, a truly good person who can experience the good life. It's not because God is saying, I'm going to take that away from you. It's simply that you've chosen another kind of reward, and it's incompatible with that one. The last thing we wanted to look at today is is how you free yourself from this. If this describes you or if this resonates with you a little bit, how is it that you free yourself from approval addiction? Well, it's not just by willpower. You might think about it like this. We're all made by God with these two basic human needs. We have the need to be accepted, and we have the need to be deeply known. You might think of this like a little two-by-two matrix. In fact, if if you have it in your notes, you have something that looks sort of like this. And I know you probably can't read the one I'm holding up. but, But if you think about a matrix where it has the question of acceptance, am I accepted, no or yes, and the question of knowability, am I known, no or yes. And then you look what happens as you move through the square. If I'm getting accepted, but I'm not getting approval, so yes, I'm accepted, but no, I'm not approved, that's an illusion, isn't it? That's exactly what's going on in Matthew in chapter 6. People are pretending. They're living these illusory lives. Look at me pray. Look at me give. Look at me fast. They're getting other people to approve of them, but they're not really known. And this way of living, it's, it's really empty. A lot of churches are at risk of becoming like this. This, this is where hypocrisy lives. Now, what happens if nobody knows me and nobody accepts me? Well, that's isolation. To be unknown and unaccepted, many of us are struggling because it feels increasingly that's what our lives are these days. It's epidemic. But it wasn't just a government-ordered lockdown that caused it to happen. I mean, it's ironic in our day of social media and technology that there are record numbers of people who said they feel absolutely isolated and lonely in the world. They're not known. They're not accepted. Those numbers, these statistics, they just keep going up and up and up. And what happens 
if you're known, yes, I'm known, but I'm not accepted. If somebody knows me and doesn't accept me, isn't that rejection? And that's so painful. We'll do anything we can to get out of there. It's interesting, you know, at the very beginning of the Bible, when the Bible talks about human beings at the beginning, this is what it says about Adam and Eve. It says they were both naked, that is, they were fully known, and they were not ashamed. That's to say they were accepted. They knew this joy to be fully known, to be fully accepted. I've mentioned in past messages that over the past year I've been trying to learn a little bit as I have studied some of the material coming out of the Oxford movement in England, which is the predecessor to to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the 12 Steps. And probably you'll know, even if you haven't attended a meeting, that the first thing that happens when you come into a meeting is that everybody takes a turn introducing themselves. They'll say, hi, I'm Richard, and I'm an alcoholic. That's just a little step in this direction. The first time somebody says that, it's actually it's a huge step because people are all set up for a ton of rejection. But then what happens in the meeting is so healing because everybody just says, hi, Richard. In other words, we know you. We know you because what you've said is an incredibly vulnerable thing to say. We know you, but you're accepted here, and we'll actually cheer on that kind of vulnerability. You know, in the last quadrant of this little matrix, to be fully known and to be fully accepted, isn't that what love looks like? I mean, there's real freedom here. There's power here. There's life here. This, this is the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus wants for you. This is where you become a truly good person. To be deeply and intimately known and accepted at the same time. Jesus gives his disciples two great practices in order to help with this. One of them is one of the lesser-known spiritual disciplines. It's the practice or the discipline of secrecy. And actually, the whole first part of Matthew 6 is an invitation to the practice of secrecy. Jesus says, when you give, give in secret. When you pray, pray in secret. When you fast, fast in secret. Again, this is often misunderstood. Jesus isn't giving a whole bunch of new laws here. He's not saying anytime you pray, never do it in front of other people. It always has to be done in secret. What he's doing is giving a practice that will be tremendously helpful for you if you struggle with approval addiction. It's not a mechanical law. But for people who struggle with this, do something good. and Don't let anyone else know about it. Maybe at first that sounds terrible, but then, then what's the point of it? I, I won't get any reward for it. But Jesus says, as you do that, you'll begin to discover that you don't need to impress other people in order to live a joyful life what you actually begin to experience is freedom. And when you do that, your heavenly father who is unseen sees what's done in secret and will reward you. What's the reward? You become the kind of person who can live in abiding love and with with pervasive joy. Try it this week. Practice something in secrecy. 
Do something good for someone and don't let them know. Do something good for someone you don't like and don't let them know. That's even more fun. Write an anonymous note to encourage somebody or do a favor or, or leave a gift at their door if you're out. Don't make a special trip. But just do good things and don't tell anybody about it. Run a little experiment and find out if what Jesus said isn't true, that you experience a little freedom and a little strength every time. That's life in the kingdom. And here's the other practice, and Jesus modeled this throughout his ministry. The other practice is to get into a community of people that will offer you acceptance without you having to pretend in order to seek it. That's why the church exists. Folks, we've just celebrated Easter. And I know we had a lot of people join us, and maybe it was your first time joining us. And if so, you'll know that Easter is the one great story of the God who loved you so much that Jesus would run to earth in pursuit of you. And the idea of you living isolated, rejected, alone, just drifting off, it killed him that 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 would happen, and so he went after you. And there at the cross, we see the lengths to which he will go so that you and I can be known and accepted and loved. And really, folks, that's why we exist as a church. That's the business that we're in, to know and to be known by God, to accept and to be accepted by God. And I just want to say to, to everyone who struggles with this, I hope that you will take the challenge of becoming a follower of Jesus. Last week, some of you accepted that invitation for the first time. If that was you, we encourage you to reach out. Earlier in the service, we, we flashed up a, an email address, and we'll show it again at the end of the but it's simply this, welcome, welcome at mcbc.org. Welcome to a whole new life. Welcome to life with God. Welcome to life in accepting in an accepting community. So I hope that, that as a follower of Jesus, that you'll join us in practicing doing those little things in secret. But I hope, too, that you'll get connected into a little flock, into one of those little communities where you can experience that kind of approval. And in our church, that's the ministry of small groups. The whole reason we have them, and we've got at any given time 22, 25 of them, um, the vast majority of them are now meeting online. The whole reason we have small groups is that everybody needs that, a place to be known, a place to be accepted. There are people who go to church Maybe this describes you as you're watching this morning. They come week after week, month after month, but really they're just permanent visitors. They're never really known. On this first weekend after Easter, I want to challenge you. I want to invite you. If that's you, and if maybe you're feeling a little nudge right now to get out of that permanent visitor category and get into a little flock, Maybe you know somebody at our church who's in a small group and you could ask them about it. But if not, let me suggest you start by sending an email. Welcome at mcbc.org.
www.lifeforgiveness.org. Don't do life alone. Don't do life without knowing and accepting the love of God. Folks, if you're leading one of those life groups, those small groups, you're a hero. We love you. Thank you for your faithfulness these days. If you're attending one of those, I hope the experience is rich and full and growing for you. But if you're not, don't do life alone. Let me pray for you and then bless you, and we'll have Rochelle sing us out. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the great love that you have for us. And I pray this afternoon now for everyone who struggles with their image, anyone who has ever felt isolated or rejected or false or alone. God, in these few sacred moments, would you help them to experience the warmth, the embrace of a loving and accepting God And then would you help your church to become the kind of place where together we can bask in the love of God and reflect it to those around us. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.